0: This afternoon, we will hear the Word of God as we confess it in Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And in connection with that, I would also like to read from the Belgic Confession, from Article 18 of the Belgic Confession, page 506 in your book of praise, if you have a book of praise. The incarnation of the Son of God. this is what we as church confess about the incarnation of Jesus Christ. We confess, therefore... That God has fulfilled the promise he made to the fathers by the mouths of, mouth of his holy prophets. When at the time appointed by him, he sent into the world his only, own only begotten and eternal son, who took the form of a servant and was born in the likeness of men. He truly assumed a real human nature with all its infirmities, without sin, for he was conceived in the womb of the blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit and not by the act of a man. He not only assumed human nature as to the body, but also a true human soul, in order that he might be a real man. For since the soul was lost as well as the body, it was necessary that he should assume both to save both. Contrary to the heresy of the Anabaptists, who deny that Christ assumed human flesh of his mother, we therefore confess that Christ partook of the flesh and blood of the children. He is a descendant of David, born of David according to his human nature. Of the womb of the Virgin Mary, born of woman, a branch of David, a shoot from the stump of Jesse, descended from Judah, descended from the Jews according to the flesh, of the seed of Abraham, since the son was concerned with the descendants of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, yet without sin. In this way he is in truth our Emmanuel, that is, God with us. Let's also read together Lord's Day 6 of the Heidelberg Catechism, page 522 in the Book of Praise. Question 16 asks, why must he be a true and righteous man? The answer is, he must be a true man because the justice of God requires that the same human nature which has sinned should pay for sin. He must be a righteous man because one who himself is a sinner cannot pay for others. Question 17 asks why must he at the same time be true god and our answer is he must be true god so that by the power of his divine nature he might bear in his human nature the burden of god's wrath and might obtain for us and restore to us righteousness and life finally in question 18 but who is that mediator who is who at the t- same time is true god and a true and righteous man The answer, our Lord Jesus Christ, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 30. And finally, question 19 From where do you know this? And our answer is from the Holy Gospel, which God Himself first revealed in Paradise. Later, He had it proclaimed by the patriarchs and prophets and foreshadowed by the sacrifices and other ceremonies of the law. Finally, He had it fulfilled. Through his only Son. May God bless the reading of his word and also the reading of our confession and the proclamation of the gospel this afternoon. Following the sermon, in response to it, we'll sing hymn six. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, there's a word that pops up a number of times in the New Testament. And that word says a lot about the Christian faith. And that word is mystery. One modern definition of the word mystery is something that's difficult or impossible to understand or explain. But that doesn't really capture the meaning of the word in the New Testament usage of it. The best way to understand the word mystery as it's used in the New Testament is to read the word in uh, in context in Romans chapter 16, the verses 25-25. To 27. and there it says, Romans 16:25 to27 says, "Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith, to the only wise God be glory forevermore." Through Jesus Christ, amen. Now in the time of the New Testament church, when these words were written, the word mystery was often used to describe a certain type of religion, the mystery religions. And the mystery religions were cults or sects that had specific teachings that were secret. They could only be revealed to people who had gone through the initiation process. And that was one of the aspects of those religions that appealed to people. The opportunity to be a part of a group or an organization that had a special form of knowledge and understanding of its own. And that was knowledge that outsiders had no access to. But in the New Testament, as the Apostle Paul uses this word in Romans 16 and elsewhere, that word mystery has a different, entirely different connotation. For Paul, the mystery of the Christian faith was a truth that had not been known before, but a truth that had now been revealed, that had now been made known by God. So when the Son of God came into the world, he made clear what had formerly, under the Old Covenant, only been revealed in types and shadows. And so what was only partially understood under the Old Covenant had now, in the New Testament, been made plain. And so that's the sense of the word in passages like 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Where it says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up into glory. And so central to that mystery is the first part of what the Apostle Paul says here. He was manifested in the flesh. So it's the mystery of the incarnation. God the Father sending into the world His only begotten and eternal Son. The Son, eternal God, taking on human flesh, taking on, taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, assuming human nature with all of its infirmities, yet without sin. And so he assumed human nature, body, and soul. He was a complete man. And so great is the mystery. God becomes a human being for the sake of human beings. Now, from the earliest history of the church, there were always those who wanted to deny the real humanity of Jesus Christ. And these these people, this false teaching was called docetism. And the docetists, they, they taught that Jesus appeared to be fully man, but that he wasn't really. And following a similar way of thinking, the Anabaptists, we read about them in the Belgic Confession, the Anabaptists in the time of the Reformation also taught that Jesus Christ was not from Mary's flesh, which was also included under sin. And so they, they didn't believe that Jesus Christ was truly man. The idea for them was that Christ's physical body, originated not on earth, but in heaven. And so it seems strange, but it proved to be such a vital question for some of the Anabaptists in the time of the Reformation that they refused to recant their denial of Jesus Christ taking on human flesh through his mother Mary, and that was even if they faced death and torture. So the question arises, why was this so important for them? And one of the early Anabaptist leaders seem to believe that what is spiritual is, by its very nature, good, and the material world is, by its nature, evil. And so this is a kind of a dualism. What's spiritual is good, what's physical is bad, that comes from an ancient Christian heresy called Gnosticism. Now, the Gnostics... They hated matter, created things, they hated nature, they hated creation. Uh, they believe that only what is completely spiritual is good. Anything physical, anything that can be touched, including the body, is not good. So that means that our body, our desires, the physical world in general, are at best, according to this teaching, necessary evils. So eating and, dr- eating and drinking, for example were sadly necessary in order to maintain this life. But true spirituality meant eating and drinking as little as possible in order to survive, and certainly not taking any pleasure in those activities, let alone any other activities, including sexual activity. So this Gnosticism, it had a huge impact on the church. And what would happen is hermits, hermit monks, they would remove themselves from society, And they would go off and they would live by themselves in the wilderness and they would fast and they would physically abuse themselves. Monks and nuns, they would abstain from certain foods. They would take oaths of celibacy. They wanted to avoid the evils of the physical world. And they wanted to try to conquer those physical desires. And we can still see the remnants of that kind of thinking in the Roman Catholic Church especially, And that's where the idea of clerical celibacy came from. And this kind of Gnostic thinking isn't limited to the Roman Catholic Church because many Christians are unwittingly Gnostic in their thinking when they denigrate, when they speak poorly of what's physical and they exalt the spiritual and then artificially divide life in that way. But... Scripture teaches, and we confess, that Jesus Christ came to redeem all of man, physical and spiritual, body and soul. So, our eternal destiny is not floating around on the clouds without bodies as spirit beings, as, as some people imagine, like angels playing their harps on the clouds forever. Our bodies are going to be resurrected, and we are going to receive glorified bodies, but real bodies. Bodies that are untainted, unmarred by sin and by the results of sin that affect us spiritually and physically. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the Apostle Paul writes this. He writes about the resurrection of the dead and he says, What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. Now there is a contrast here between the natural and the spiritual, between the man of dust and the man from heaven. But that doesn't mean that the natural is evil and the spiritual is good, as if they were opposed to each other. That word word spiritual doesn't mean not having a body. It speaks of the power of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit gives new life to the dead. And so from being children of Adam, stained, infected, made filthy by original sin, we are united to the second Adam, to Jesus Christ. And so we become, we will become like him with a physical glorified body. And that means no pain, no disease, no aging, none of the physical suffering that that so many of us have to deal with. Now, that is what's in store for God's people in eternity. And that's because of Christ's work in the incarnation. Now, if we look at, and we think of 1 Timothy 3, verse 16, and we think about the context, we can see the importance of the incarnation. Now, great is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh. And nothing is to be rejected if it it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God in prayer. And so this is connected with those words. He was manifested in the flesh. And that's important because denial of this teaching leads to what Paul calls the teachings of demons. And it shows us the seriousness of this kind of false teaching. Now we generally think it's worse if people teach, uh, if someone teaches people that they're allowed to do things that God forbids. But Paul teaches that it's just as bad, just as serious, to forbid activities that God permits. And so when we think about the flesh, sometimes in Scripture the word flesh means our own, our old sinful nature. Romans chapter seven, for example. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful, our, our, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But in Romans 8, that word flesh is used in two different ways. First of all, as a word for our old nature, which is stained by sin, but also to describe the physical nature of Jesus in Christ his incarnation, when he became man. Romans 8, verses 1 through 5 says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh. So here he's talking about the flesh in terms of the sinful nature, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. And so the son of God was descended from David according to the flesh. Just like Abraham was our forefather, according to the flesh. So Jesus was fully human. He had a real human body. He had a real human nature. He really was a descendant of David. He really was Mary's son. He was fully and completely human. And because of this, he could save us. He had to be truly man. As we confess, the justice of God requires that the same human nature that sinned must pay for sin. And so, the great mystery of our faith, the incarnation of the Son of God, the Word becoming flesh, is essential for our salvation. Now, if we've known about the incarnation of Jesus Christ for a long time, And if we've heard about it many times, we may take this part of our faith for granted. We may not think about it very much. But just think about it for a moment. Here we have the Almighty God of the universe. Isaiah 66, verse 1. He said, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? What is the place of my rest? And so God could not be housed in a temple... He couldn't be domesticated. He couldn't be limited or controlled in any way. He's described as in 1 Timothy 6, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see. But when Jesus Christ came into this world, God became man. He limited himself purposefully, and deliberately. And it sounds strange even just to say this, but we could say that God himself spent nine months in Mary's womb. Now this ties in with another one of the great mysteries of the Christian faith, which is the Trinity. Because a statement like that, while true, can also be misleading, and it can also lead to understanding. It's like calling Mary the mother of God. In a way, it's true, but it's not complete. Statements like that can lead to serious theological problems, which can also bear bad fruit in Christian life. So, we need to clarify. It's not as though God left the universe to run on its own while he spent nine months in Mary's womb. But still, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, God himself, chose to be conceived, To grow in his mother's womb, to undergo the experience of birth, to experience infancy, a state of, as we know, complete dependence on the baby's mother, to grow as a child into a young man and then into adulthood. The Son of God, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. That's Jesus Christ. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross, as Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. And so, brothers and sisters, this is truly an amazing thing for us to contemplate, even though it's impossible for us to really fully, completely wrap our minds around it. But he did it for us. For his people. We had sinned against him. We had no claim on him. We had no right to receive anything from him. Let alone a complete restoration. Let alone new life. Reconciliation with him. A restored relationship. We deserve death and eternal punishment because of our sin. But God had a plan. And he worked out that plan in the most amazing way because he is good and he is gracious beyond all measure. He sent his son to be born of a woman, to be like his brothers in every respect except without sin so that he could offer himself as the perfect sacrifice on our behalf. And that is what makes salvation possible for those who trust in him. And we don't have to repay him. In fact, We could never repay him for this gift. All we have to do is have faith. Now, of course, if we have faith and if we have true faith, that faith is going to show itself in our lives. Our obedience will take on the form of obedience to the Son of God. He emptied himself. He humbled himself in a way that's greater than infinitely greater than any kind of humiliation that we could undergo or experience in this life but we are also called to be imitators of him and humble ourselves as well and first of all we humble ourselves before god he's the creator we are the creatures he's the king we are his subjects he's the father we are his children he's revealed his will to us and so we need to humble ourselves before his will Not thinking that we know better, not imagining that we can go our own way, not not thinking that we can make our own rules, or thinking, even worse, that we can control him or that we can force his hand and we we can make him do what we want him to do. So in short, we cannot treat him like idolaters treat their false gods because he's not subject to us, we are subject to him. And so that's our starting point. In imitation of Christ, we humble ourselves before God. But flowing from that humility, we're also called to humble ourselves before one another. And that means not considering that we're too good for anything, too good to serve, too good to to put other people's needs first, too special to be servants of anyone else. Consider Jesus and consider what he did. From the moment that he was conceived, when the second pers- person of the Trinity took on human flesh. And from those very humble, the humblest of beginnings, he continued to live humbly before his Father, even with his own disciples, washing his disciples' feet. Now if you compare how we can possibly humble ourselves before our fellow human beings, nothing could even come close. And so that attitude of humility must govern all of our relationships so if we have authority we need to lead humbly we need to humble ourselves before our spouses that goes for husbands as well as for wives children need to live in humility before their parents as brothers and sisters in the church we should even be seeking ways in which we can humbly serve the church as a whole and our individual brothers and sisters All of this based on the incarnation of Jesus Christ. When we consider, brothers and sisters, how our Savior humbled himself, how he did that for our sake, for our salvation, we should be motivated even more to exemplify that humility in our own lives, in our own relationships. The incarnation of the Son of God, it serves as a model for us. It's the way of salvation, but it also provides us with the model to follow. It makes, also, being much more than just the model, it makes humble obedience and faithful living and obedient service possible. And it makes it possible for God's glory, for His praise, to serve Him. And so, in conclusion, we hold to this mystery of the faith. And we seek to live out our knowledge of the revelation of that mystery. And once again, here, doctrine must have an impact on our lives. And so this is much more than just an orthodox confession that doesn't never touches the ground at any place. We need to understand the mystery of the incarnation. We need to meditate on the unique beauty of this truth. And we also need to apply it in our daily lives. God became man, truly God, and truly man, in order to save man. Brothers and sisters, what a wondrous truth that is. And we celebrate this afternoon as well in our celebration of the Lord's Supper. And may God bless that.